Hi, welcome to Deep Americana. I am your host for season four. My name is Wes Unruh. And season four is Unrelated Thoughts on Being an Unruly Adoptee. My name is Wes Unruh. I was adopted in April 15th, 1974 in Twin Falls, Idaho in the Magic Valley Regional Medical Center. I was born a little after when my biological mother was still under anesthesia. I was adopted then, that day. Uh, before the sun went down, I was with my adoptive parents. <clears throat> if you've been listening to this episode, the series of episodes, if I made them public in some way, or if you uncovered these recordings, I do hope that this sort of one thing that comes through all of this, as I said in the last episode, is, you know, stop traumatizing mothers and infants under the rubric of protecting identity. Stop encouraging an under-regulated Christian indoctrination industry. Um, I think these are really horrifying practices. Um, We're all struggling to thrive as adoptees, and the reason is the system of secrecy through which we are stigmatized and devalued. So, you know, my initial separation and my experiences uh, that set me on edge created a condition, a brain change, called complex PTSD. I think there's something else going on. I call it identity trauma, but in any case, in treatment for this mental energy, uh, injury, in therapy for it, has kind of a, given me an appreciation for what trauma itself does. I've also had a brain injury, several, actually, the recovery from which was also tedious and slow. So um, patients had never been my strongest trait, and recovery forced me to learn to be patient. Mm. Uh, in Pete Walker's book, uh, Complex PTSD, where I first read the term recovery, he described the following on page 81. This is from Complex PTSD from Surviving to Thriving, and part of his progression of recovering section. He writes, The survivor who follows the introspective road less traveled becomes increasingly free of compulsive and unconscious allegiance to unhelpful familial, religious, and societal values that were instilled at an impressionable age. The recovery now gets to choose her own values and reject those that are not in her own best interest. She develops a deeper, more grounded self-respect that is not contingent upon going with the herd and shifting center with every new popular trend. In psychological parlance, she becomes free and brave enough to individuate and develop more of her full potential. In Joseph Campbell's words, the survivor learns to follow his own bliss. He is freer to pursue activities and interests that naturally appeal to him. He evolves into his own sense of style. He may even feel emboldened to coif and dress himself without adherence to the standards of fashion. He may extend this freedom into his home decor. In this vein, I have seen many survivors discover their own aesthetic as well as an increased appreciation of beauty in general. It ends here. So, uh, Walker's book, Complex PTSD, is a valuable tool um, for all adoptees to have at hand. Um, while it's not explicitly about the adoptee journey, I sure 
surely Betty Jean Lifton's books cover that ground quite well. But it is a tool that I relied on to find my own strategies for navigating my own PTSD disability. So <clears throat> cognitive therapy and emotional discharge is essential for preventing buildup of cortisol. Um, it's a stress hormone that causes health problems that then create new moments of stress. It is all too easy for a blow to the head to turn into a year of mental duress, as my recent recovery time from a brain injury showed. The brain injury was followed by a significant jump in paranoid thinking, which I overcame through hour-long therapy sessions three times a month and some strategically used anxiety medications. Nightmares made sleep difficult. Often I sleep with radio, television, or podcast on to prevent my wandering mind from eating itself. So, recasting memories in dark and threatening ways as I slept. Um, owning these moments with artistic representations, or as I've done with some self-hypnosis, by recreating audio spaces that intentionally call up the moments of trauma, then dissipate those memories through hypnotic strategies, um, uh, meditation is a powerful way to digest and push through one's conscious past. I lean towards a kind of dream alchemy, more interested in the idea of a spiritual set of symbolic rituals that can unlock improvement of one's mind, uh, uh, sort of the psychic self-defense of selective resolve, if you will, or mental mantric loops to extend psychic focus. So these Internal states can be augmented, uh, creating audio soundscapes is what I've been doing to augment therapeutic recovery. That was sort of the obvious next step for my recovery process during my therapy sessions. Uh, and so most of my detrimental flashbacks, mainly the ones around freezing in the Idaho night, begin slowly more physical than mental now. These episodes are seizures almost of sorts, and I find it difficult, if not impossible, to speak during these events. I kind of shiver or locked in a position that I can't unclench from easily, stiffening ultimately into a fetal position until I'm warm enough. But that warmth isn't just a physical warmth, it's like a mental and emotional warmth I'm looking for. Uh, during these episodes, I cannot speak without my teeth chattering uncontrollably, um, painfully. I often notice when it's about to begin, I'm too cold or I've eaten ice cream late at night, but the mental lock of panic and fear overpowers my decision-making mind. I'd be best served to immediately get into a hot shower until the episode fades, but often I find myself wrapped in blankets, too paralyzed to move. After time, ultimately, my body would slowly unlock and I'd regain my speech. But I'm left with a crushing headache and a deep need to get warm, to cuddle, to be held. For a long, long time, this was the way these episodes transpired. So I've always flattened the fall into the snowbank, the near fall from the plane as two sides of the same trauma. I talked about this several early on in these episodes. And I paired those moments as back-to-back audio tracks for guided re-experiencing when I made my own self-hypnosis tracks. Um, since creating a form of the trauma that I can expose myself to through those tracks, I kind of inoculate myself with and then move away from that traumatic moment is sort of externalized and I can re-enter it via my headphones. Um, I made an album called the, the Eve Of that you can listen to 
So it's no longer listened to my, locked into my nervous system. It's externalized. Um, the pain and personal internal frozen time is melted somewhat as a result. Obviously, there are plenty of things I can do. There's plenty of work left for me to do on myself. I have traumatic memories that cause me to freeze up in other instances. My new strategies involve identifying those moments and documenting them, then creating ways to explode and explore those moments, sort of find the root memory or sensation that powers those anxieties and drag it into consciousness. Shadows dissolve in the light, and projecting back into these memories is a way to bring light is a way to bring light into those mental recesses. That light in extension, consciousness carried into unconscious spaces, creates ripples in life that carry over into relationships and reign vigor, personal resolve, discipline, and innovative problem solving. Um, Every act of self-care has positive impact on one's life, and I had a hard time as an adoptee seeing myself as worthy of self-care, of a good haircut, of a new suit, or better shoes. Disregarding the cost, I still couldn't see myself as someone who could go shopping. I always feel as if I will be run out of the store by security. Without my wife at my side, I wouldn't have purchased any new clothes in the past decade. Um, My life has been altered for the better through my marriage. Without that new stability, my symptoms would have increasingly become unmanageable as I aged. I have always, to my detriment, tended towards self-reliance, counter-dependency. But there is no way I could have found the peace of mind to develop each of the strategies I now use to manage my symptoms of CPTSD without that peace of mind. Without that girl in Twin Falls, Idaho, long ago, convincing me to try hypnosis when I was a kid, right? Knowing that I'm safe, even when emotionally I am raw or caught up in a flashback or reliving a memory of abuse, I can now count backwards from 13 and achieve an alpha wave state on my own pretty quickly or with the aid of my cat. Um... I cannot fill a book up or even a podcast with all of the moments that formed my worldview or reveal the stories of those I grew up with alongside. Those are not my stories to tell. And so what I've presented is neither meant to aggrandize my decisions or how I dissolved or resolved my disputes or relationships, nor do I want to ascribe intentional malevolence to my adoptive parents when often the root issue was negligence and inattention I do not think my adoptive father intended to destroy my fingers or kill me by throwing me headfirst into a river at the top of the South Hills in Idaho. But these beliefs do not overpower the aliefs, the physicality that my body knows, the vertigo I feel while playing a video game, for example, that immediately conjures the memory of certs mints falling 8,000 feet from my lips onto the fractured farmland far below when the door open on that airplane as it burst past. Did, did a mint fall from my lips when the door to the airplane burst open? I think it must have. It's such a strange moment to latch on to, but do I remember it correctly? Did something else fall? And I substituted that mint as a cipher, a stand-in for what fell. Um, my primal wound, the abandonment that happened to me as an infant in the first hours of my life, is a trauma that is preverbal. The identity trauma, the impact, was at a root point of development, and it forever impacted how I trust others, how I form relationships, 
how I see God and what I do to feel safe. Um, the fact that I have Saturn in the 11th house in Gemini um, is reflective of that. Does it mean that astrology is true or false or that it works? Neither being true nor false. You know, my medical needs are different than the kept. How I process stress is different than the kept uh, as an adoptee. And none of this is visible when you first encounter me. Or rather, on good days, none of this would be visible. On bad days, I won't be visible. I will not be in public. I will be overly long in the bathroom. I will be working under headphones. I will be sick in bed asleep or watching a C-SPAN. I will be missing from public life. I will be quiet and leave early from a pounding anxiety at my temples. On bad days, I will not share. And this invisibility is a larger problem. When we who have PTSD and CPTSD are invisible, the problems that cause those traumas go unresolved. My trauma is caused by adoption and the way that Christian institutions use adoption not to care for children, but to force conversions on the young to indoctrinate them into a culture war and to prepare them as frontline soldiers in a rhetorical call to actual arms. That is my trauma. That is what I see expressed underneath the evangelical adoption rhetoric. And it is a real political factor in the debate around abortion, reproduction, and immigration. Adoptees are not political pawns, answers to prayer, or puppies to play with. Adoptees are not meant to do chores or field work. They are children in need of a home and someone to care for them, they need legal guardians who are capable of empathy and loyalty. Erasing their names is a bid for invisibility, which again prevents resolution of trauma. Adoptees in their trauma and their stories are often overlooked, silenced, and denounced in this current zeitgeist. Others who hide their PTSD symptoms, likewise, remove visible social costs to political decisions be they costs of war, the cost of the drug war, or costs of unaddressed domestic violence and child abuse. Um, PTSD is not a mental disease. It's a mental health issue, but it's not a disease. It's not a mental disease. It is an open wound, and left untreated, it will cure as surely as sepsis. The primal wound is only one of many kinds of PTSD injuries. Um, for those who are adoptees listening to me, I recommend that you search for your own story of origin. For my generation and older, I recommend that you read Anne Fessler's book, The Girls Who Went Away, and build a composite mental image of who you are trying to find. Use what you know of the time and place in which you were born and reconstruct that in some way. Find out what the laws in your state permits you to do. Um, in some cases, you may be able to get her name. In others, perhaps, some non-identifying medical details. Um, on page 249 of her book, The Girls Who Went Away, Anne Fessler writes this. Those who decide to search are generally categorized as either active or passive searchers. Active searchers work at locating the other person, whereas passive searchers generally limit their efforts to trying to make themselves findable. Often those interested in a reunion join a support organization where they can communicate with others who have constructed or conducted successful searches, and who may be able to offer advice. Some mothers and adoptees try their hand at searching for a period of time and then turn to professional searchers who can sometimes locate the missing person in as little as 24 hours. In some cases, mothers, fathers, siblings, and adoptees pay private detectives or professional searchers considerable fees 
to locate a missing family member, and in other cases, search angels or volunteer searchers help for free. That ends her passage. I'll tell you, I was lucky. Uh, my half-sister had been looking for me within the same period of time that a search angel contacted me with my birth mother's name and address. Online forums had led me to spaces where I could post all of my details, birth date, adopted name, any piece of family trivia, hospital, and anonymous unpaid search angels might pick up on those posts and return information out of the blue. This is what happened to me, months after posting my contact information in my birth story. When I wrote my mother, it was with a great deal of anxiety. I was worried she would ignore me or overlook the envelope or I don't know what. I was paralyzed for days until I got an excited friend request on Yahoo Messenger from Jen, my half-sister. She let me know my mother, Nancy, had received my letter and was writing a response. Jen also told me she had found me months earlier at a different Yahoo Messenger ID, but that I'd never responded. All of this was fantastic, utterly gobsmacking news in the moment. I'd stopped using that account when I'd stopped playing Yahoo Pool on a regular basis, and had even seen her, as I said in a previous episode, send a message as I was shutting down a computer, but the screen blinked off before I'd been able to fully parse what I'd read. I learned later that I was the first account she clicked on, the first time she'd signed up for Yahoo Messenger, literally her first time using social media online, being online in any way. Um, there is, unbeknownst to the social engineers and religious entrepreneurs who traffic in adoptees, a mystic force that connects adoptees to their biological families. The movie The Forgotten, a 2004 movie, effectively dramatizes this force, uh, an occult energy that the institutional framework refuses to acknowledge. This secret knot will manifest despite psychiatric drugs, despite institutional forces, despite sealed birth certificates, despite Christian nonprofits taking in millions of dollars for international adoptions. Despite all of these things, these spiritual ties are much more real than state laws or religious dogma. Adoption, as it is practiced, is a wound perpetrated on the souls and identities of the weakest members of society, the youngest. Um, I think it is a strange miracle that I found my biological family at all. And our distant awareness of each other is another reason I have progressed toward integration. I am healed by knowing I am real, that I have somewhere I am from, that I am not just a commodity, a baby boy procured as one would adopt a pound puppy or purchase a cabbage patch kid. Sealed birth certificates do not sever the blood bonds between birth mother and adoptee. Religious indoctrination can only demonize the grieving ancestral spirits for so long before their secret influence breaks through and begins to guide the attentive adoptee back to the family's narrative. The central story and extended family tells itself through personal rituals and gatherings. Adoptees are occultists, uh, specializing in their own private secret conspiracy theories. You know, my... My wedding had no presence from my extended biological family, but one of my adoptive grandparents was there, my grandpa Crayon. Never once did he treat me as anything different from his other grandchildren, and I loved him for it. He was there, dancing and cheering, as I married the love of my life, and I am grateful for that memory. Uh, an adoptee's memories are a grab bag of emotions. There are countless reasons for me to be enraged, but I am mostly complacent. I've often found myself convinced I was an experiment uh, conceived in secret that I somehow slipped off the radar. Uh, so, you know, watching all of the episodes of Orphan Black on BBC America helped me 
navigate that particularly paranoid conclusion. Stories matter in that they can help deconstruct private, internalized, inaccurate beliefs. For myself, I wish I could move beyond these obsessions with narratives reflecting bastards as pivotal characters in epic struggle and flatten that need to relate and the resulting fear of missing our, if not being seen, that tastes taints all of the creative work I set out to achieve. Um, if I could get all of this adoptee energy into a text, then maybe I could move on, sort of finish other work that is half-rendered. I, I really want to write young adult fantasy fiction, but this book or this project and this podcast and all of this, everything you're hearing, sort of stands in the way of that. Um, the birth of my son began a new chapter for my life, but until I can share, and in doing so, release my story of trauma into the world, I kind of fear I cannot fully move forward into a life where I'm engaged with my own family and my own blood. My son makes that future real, and doing this, reading this podcast out, reading through this book, writing this book, scripting all of this, I guess helps free me of the fetters that prevented me from fully engaging, perhaps, with him. Moving towards a future as a father who cares, who is attentive, who is aware of threats, who would never throw his son headfirst across a river, or would neglect to check that the seatbelts were in place before driving down the street, um, that's the father I want to be for him. Not a father who comes home to whip his son with the leather belt until he is, you know, satisfied with the screams. I've gone years without speaking to my adoptive parents at times. I'm still around. I still exist. I did not lose my identity when I stopped engaging with them. Somehow I found a way to be real, despite the identity that I felt I had to perform when they were around. Family is not a zero-sum game. There are ways to be inclusive that my control-obsessed adoptive father would never have understood. Birth certificates need not be sealed. Birth mothers could still engage with their children. Adoption as a practice is based on outmoded thinking and destructive moralistic attitudes that do actual harm to women and children. Breaking this cycle on the political level is important. I should not be one of many who have disrupted their family. The pain I cause them is just as real as the anguish I experience over what never could have been. Um, Adoptive parents are lied to in the same way birth mothers are lied to, and they are then encouraged to lie to the adoptee, all in deference to some greater good. If the only way for you as an adoptee to find your way forward is to cut yourself off from your adoptive parents or a family member who treats you as different from the rest of the family, then by all means do so. Life is difficult enough without unnecessary conflicts undercutting your emotional and mental health. Likewise, the decision to search, as I've described, actively or passively, is very personal. It is a decision that cuts to the heart of identity and identity, identity traumas. And any decision must be honored. Those who fight your decision are toxic. They're threats to your pursuit of wholeness. I do not mean to say that finding your birth family will in any way lead to wholeness. Rather, the decision to search and the steps you take to undertake that journey are steps toward healing. You know, trauma is a scar. It is a kind of memory, and moving that memory loosens up that scar, allows you to find ways to use that traumatic energy for more than reactive, fear-driven responses. I don't speak to my adoptive parents often, but I do stay in contact 
Um, I stay in contact with my adoptive sister, and her life is similar to my own. We developed an understanding later in life about what was missing in our childhood and who our adoptive parents turned out to be despite our collective best efforts. I think I gave up and walked away, moved as far away from them as I could get. My sister sought to compromise, to live as compliantly as possible in some ways, to remain under their guidance well past the age of 18. And after many years, she found them taking the side of her abusive ex-husband during a contentious divorce. Never mind the very real fears of retaliation my sister verbalized, the drunken abuse she had suffered, the emotional cheating she had documented, and all things my adoptive parents had always taken external opinion as truth over anything I or my sister would say. We were always driven from tasks to chore, used as cheap or free labor around the house, yard, and garden. When I left and she was still in high school, her world was suddenly smaller. The focus on her became overly invasive. She left as well for a while, living in California. Uh, both of us struggled in our own way to define ourselves outside of the family we had been raised within, and it would have been wonderful if we had been more supportive of each other. I think my greatest regret is not being a better advocate for my sister, and that she felt as if I had intentionally abandoned her when I struck out on my own. Um, I guess over the years we have navigated our own relationship as a kind of wartime camaraderie. We have together witnessed events that have forced us into a relationship, despite our wildly different temperaments and drives. My concern when we first picked her out of the ring of babies, I remember in that Boise home so many years ago, mountain home. My fear that we had chosen the wrong baby, that we would end up returning her for some reason, that fear proved unfounded. There are adoptees who get returned. The anxiety that underscores is real. The adoptee is not chosen, it is merely placed. There will always be children who need homes, who need love, but to portray this as divine providence or fate or anything other than chances to overburden the adoptees with religious baggage that creates unrealistic expectations for one's development. So my depression was tied into a failure to live up to the standards set by my adoptive parents' religious fervor and the disciplinarians that ran the Christian school where I attended. When I hear about Christian adoption agencies participating with foster agencies and state groups, my suspicious nature is aroused. My sister and I were not embraced by our extended family. We felt out of place in our church, and I, for one, was deeply at odds with the peers I engaged with in church and school. I was only at peace when I escaped into a book or a video game. To be present was always to be awkward. To be controlled. To be set to work on a task or chore. I became a workaholic because I was free of oversight, free from being watched. My sister found a career where she could work to near exhaustion as a nurse, pushing her out of the oversight of our adoptive parents. Um, someday we will both be able to sit down and talk about our childhood. There are many stories left to tell, both of my own and her own private experiences. As adoptees, these stories are all we have to share. There is very little to say about our histories or heritage. We are never alone together, though. I haven't visited since my son was a year and a half old when I brought him and my wife to Kansas. Since then, we have only spoken on the phone and shared photos, social media posts. These distant, faint engagements are my deeply felt family connections. When I take a video of my son, I have only my adoptive sister to share that moment with, and if I get a response, I am thrilled. I do not always get a response, and I never expect one. I am nearly adrift entirely as far as having a family is concerned beyond my wife's extended family. 
That my sister does respond is a surprise of sorts, as I was oblivious to her struggles throughout my 20s. The idea that I had a family at all was foreign to me for so many years. Um, coming around to today, from that point 20 years ago when I was alone, adrift, seeking a self-identity, is a journey that is greater than just being an adoptee. Still, to return to Nancy Verrier's book, The Primal Wound, on page 96 she writes, Adoptees vacillate back and forth between blaming themselves for not having been good enough to keep to having a feeling of helplessness and undifferentiated anger for having been so manipulated. Uh, this ambivalence is sometimes misinterpreted by therapists when adoptees are in treatment and seen as an excuse for not taking responsibility for themselves. They are sometimes seen as using their adoptive status as a rationalization for conflicts which arise with parents making resolution of the conflict impossible. While it is true that seeing adoption as the only issue may cause parents and children to overlook some obvious interpersonal conflicts, it is important to keep in mind that adoptees are victims of manipulation of the gravest kind the severing of their tie to the birth mother and their biological roots. The feeling of being a victim is not just a fantasy, but a reality. Being abandoned often leaves one with a permanent feeling of being at the mercy of others. The fact that the child does not consciously remember the substitution of mothers does not diminish the impact of that experience. In fact, the inability to consciously remember the experience may make the impact even more devastating and perplexing. One adoptee said that the most important thing I ever told her was that feelings have memories. That's where the passage ends. But um, as I have aged, these books and their advice have been friends, reminding me that there are others just like me. My sister is only one. There are many others. And even more important, this isn't about me. My pain is subsumed. Uh, my trauma is dealt with. There is no way back from my path through life to rectify the damage done to my birth mother or the family we could have been. Instead, I tell this story, my story, so that others may be met with more empathy, perhaps. And perhaps the institution of close adoption of sealed birth records will be changed or ended. Perhaps adoptive parents will rethink their priorities. Read through the myths to the realities beneath, the real physical infant or child who comes to them by way of separation and severance. These children who are adopted are not special or lucky. They are wounded and abandoned and deeply fragile. And those who adopt children need to be equipped, uh, prepared to help heal, calm and prize these children, despite and regardless of the wounds that these children suffered. My views on adoption have matured, asking me what I thought of adoption 12 years ago, and I would have called it child slavery, trafficking, you know, just this side of genocide. My views on adoptive parents was almost universally negative, largely because I was embroiled in my own nascent understanding of the cultural forces which compelled adoptive practice. I did not have good models of what adoption could look like, what an open adoption meant, or how family preservation practices could incorporate permanent legal guardianship. Uh, gaining a sense of scale, a sense of how many adoptions there are in this country, and how adoptive parents who do try to bridge the gaps for their children can offset the trauma adoptees may face helped me understand the nuances and individuality of experience that you know, comprise the adoptee diaspora. 
And so now I think more in terms of harm reduction. I credit just listening to conversations between people like Henry Jenkins and Mike Manello and others, you know, uh, Marcy Carsey, and talk about media and its impact and the representation right? in shows like This Is Us and Legion. To that, th those anchored my understandings of the audiences and the audience experiences out there to these stories, right? This Is Us is a powerful and important narrative, and I wouldn't have given it a second chance if it hadn't been for people in my life pointing me to the stories that were being expressed in those spaces. Uh, so I think it would be so much better for families, personally, to sponsor pregnant women, provide extended family structures rather than erase an identity and seek to plant a new imprint. I really love the conversations that occur in season two, uh, three and four of This Is Us, where we understand Randall's daughter, Beth, um, and her relationship with her biological mother and essentially her, her stepmother, who she's been sort of adopted into. Um, a path towards this socially is open adoption, where the name is changed, but the birth certificate is not sealed. Uh, perhaps the birth mother continues to nurse for a period of time, as, in, as in insinuated in the movie The Ten Commandments, right? Or the adoption is handled within the larger family, like in the television program Andy Mack, um, uh, the Disney program, where Andy discovers her sister is her birth mother, and her adoptive mother is actually her birth grandmother. Uh, at the very least, the genetic connections remain intact, even if the narratives of belonging become disrupted in the moment of late adoptee revelation. Uh, my adoption is not going to be fixed, uh, legal or not. Uh, but my experience and the stories of other adoptees can be noted, learned from, and used to spark cultural change. There is a reason for Bastard Nation, the organization. It could be a rallying, a rallying point for a civil rights movement. Families belong together, and children should not be separated from their mothers. That this has become a rallying cry about refugees and immigrants shows how universal this message has become. Adoptees are a symptom of a larger broken aspect to the social world. Our world undervalues mothers and their children. That's what these narratives, like The Handmaid's Tale, are about. We do not put women and children first, be they poor or immigrants, asylum seekers, or the homeless. Instead, the cult of adoption has created markets for families and preys on the children while abusing the trust of the mothers. In the case of the border separations, a period of foster care helps break the wills of many children who are then adopted, their identities sealed away. Adoption has been used in other countries to absorb and erase indigenous cultures, and the use of this practice is in so much as it is a conscious practice set in motion by an individual would be a breach of international law regarding genocide practices. Um, but it is only the online adoptee activist community which sees the broader implication of what is happening within the industry and is calling attention to the mechanisms. Uh, so, as long as the adoption industry is complicit with illegal child trafficking, it needs to be disrupted and regulated by federal law. New legislation changing adoption practices should be implemented. 
In a sane world, there would be no state-by-state -state variance in adoption law. Adoptees would be reviewed by social workers to determine if they need therapy or rehoming, if no bonding is occurring, or if abuse is evident. Uh, federal laws should determine how long birth records should be sealed and for what reasons, and no one should be prevented from obtaining their own records once they're of voting age. Right now, as I wrote this script and as I speak this, adoptee writes very wildly from state to state. One of the resources worth reviewing is Adoptee Rights Law, both a website and a social presence working to change state laws. Another is the website of what I've mentioned numerous times, Bastard Nation at bastards.org, and on Twitter at Bastards Unite. Following these two on Twitter, use the websites to stay aware of adoptees issues. And this isn't about me. This book, this podcast, all of these episodes is about those who haven't yet been severed from their mothers. <sighs> on its face, the idea of adoptee civil rights may sound absurd. I myself didn't take it seriously at first when I saw the phrase in print. But years of waiting for results when I submitted personal details to adoption registries made me realize that these passive approaches to searching were designed to distract, to siphon off energy to pass the buck of adoptees' pain through a bureaucratic maze. Making noise is the only way to create change in the contemporary political moment. So, I came to the script, writing this book, all of this, prior to the pandemic of 2020. My experience, while personal, did not occur in a vacuum, and the world in which I headed this experience has passed on. We live now in a new kind of world, at once deeply interconnected and in some ways more stratified than ever. The divisions between people seem to have deepened during the 2020 pandemic's early months, and the political climate, accentuated in the United States by a presidential election, only served to further underscore those divisions. Uh, due to financial pressures caused by the pandemic, I found myself and two of my coworkers laid off from our jobs at the University of Georgia, where I had worked for years as a digital media strategist for the Peabody Awards. When I reference the people that I've met at various points in media and industries through those connections. I've often found myself masked and protesting injustice. I've found myself driven to challenge authority, request investigations, and filing more legal documents over the last year than the previous decade. Um, my life, much like the world around me, is cast once again into a kind of turmoil the old world does feel as if it is being ripped apart, a new narrative overriding the past, leaving a kind of blank future canvas where assumptions are questionable now and traditions become malleable. Um, but at the same time, the language of revolution carries within it triggers for myself, uh, reifying and perpetuating the language of oppression for adoptees, even when it seemingly stands in for resisting oppression. For example, when the Black Lives Matter protests this year occurred, more and more protesters began using the acronym ACAB for all cops are bastards. And I found myself wanting to call out the use of the word bastard in this context. The word bastard carries with it the notion of rot, of secret sin, of someone whose presence is illegitimate, someone unworthy of their station. It is the notion of bastardy that sold adoption as an industry. Using the word in this way, wielding it as a tool of slander, 
even while in a cause I find myself deeply aligned with, leaves me feeling saddened, disgusted somewhat by the ugliness behind the words. In chapter nine of Rudy Odin's memoir, You Don't Know How Lucky You Are, he confronts this word and the bias it signifies. He writes, if you were to ask Americans if they harbored fear or prejudice against bastards, they likely would say no, of course not. But if you look at how our society actually treats bastards and illegitimate persons through laws restricting rights on adoptees, the group known to everyone as bastards, you will find clear examples of bias that likely is still rooted in these older archetypal sentiments. I started this podcast, the very first episode of all of this, the beginning of this book that I was writing, with a reference to the sin eater. Adoptees as bastards are again tasked with the economy of sin, a sort of stain of inequity, a moral wound or cancer that festers anchored in the soul, the identity of the adoptee. So bastardy is a condition of having been sustained through sin, as articulated by a larger social institution. Bastards exist as they are defined as a context or pretext given to the adoptee and as a concept imparted through social interactions around the adoptee. Bastards become as they are contextualized, not born. The bastard is named this as a secondary marker alongside their given name. Adoptees are named and renamed, named in secret first by their natural mothers, named perhaps in law upon birth, named again when fostered and adopted, named again in memories of those who keep the secrets, named adoptee, named bastard, nicknamed black sheep, and often, all too often from the anecdotes in social media, silenced within their larger adoptive family structures. Adoptees are bastards, not cops. And this matters, being labeled a bastard, then remade within the label adopted, subjugates an adoptee to a bias, usually subconscious, but not always, that can impact an adoptee's experiences, particularly within religious institutions, during medical examinations, during, throughout primary and secondary education, and in interpersonal relationships. In the same chapter I mentioned above, Rudy Owens goes on to make these very points. He writes, Bastards and illegitimate children have always faced societal scorn, and they paid severely, or they paid severe and deadly consequences for it. Today, a likely contributing factor to poor health outcomes for adoptees is societal stigma and its multivariate impacts on unmarried mothers and their illegitimate kids. Despite the political correctness of the term adoptee, the underlying truth known to everyone from the adoptive parents to the adopted children to society at large is that adoptees are, sociologically speaking, bastards. Adoptees, more than the public, are the most aware of their different social status. It is a fact that I always knew, and so did nearly everyone around me, including peers my age. Today, such children still bear the stigma as being born illegitimately, despite the high prevalence of children born outside of marriage that has made their status ubiquitous. Uh, from here, Owens goes on to outline how much worse it used to be, framing social attitudes towards foundlings and bastards across the years, and why those horrendous attitudes persist in institutional responses to adoptees. I strongly recommend reading his account. It's a, it's a great book as an adoptee memoir. Uh, it provides a stark look at American bureaucracies that confront adoptees who pursue their own birth records. 
I have had my own frustrating conversations with individuals within the state of Idaho's Department of Vital Records after I found and met my biological father, not to mention the countless times I've panicked as I filed my marriage license or filled out the paperwork for an employment background check or applied for a passport. When the origins of one's identity are a narrative, anchored in state records one's not allowed to see, all official interactions with the state become existential crises. Adoptees trade stories of absurd moments throughout their lives, often reflecting on the complications that arise during medical exams, obscuring an individual's medical heritage, hiding their identity, only further alienates adoptees from understanding themselves. The constant pressure of depersonalization does create moments where an adoptee feels othered, uh, distanced from the normative flow of daily expression of self-identity that the kept are able to perform. Um, uh, the narrative accretion of these moments over the course of a lifetime can cause the self to seek dissolution or regeneration or forms of reifying expression. Um, perhaps to put this in more simple terms, coming into discovery of information that undoes or complicates a personal sense of oneself can radically alter the course of one's life. I feel that after years and years of living within the instability of self-identity, I've come to a kind of tumultuous balance of sorts, resisting the urge towards dissolution, toward acceptance of entropy, a deep-seated desire to wrestle the cosmos back into order. It is important to balance these urges against the responsibilities of daily life. My own life has been disrupted deeply by the early years during my search. Finding my biological mother and suddenly finding my identity being reshaped by that discovery was psychologically challenging. I spent years integrating a new narrative of self, finding ways to be at ease with this sudden shift of perspective on my own place in the universe. The second disruption, locating my biological father, was easier to anticipate, even though it was just as dramatic to experience. I was blessed to have my family and a few very good friends at my side when I got the first phone call from my biological father that pivotal day in 2018 and to have my wife and son with me when I met him a year later in the airport at Boise, Idaho. But the journey from Georgia to Idaho and back was nothing compared to the emotional journey that I experienced over the many years since I first started asking my adoptive parents probing questions in the early 90s. Adoptees online today are a valuable source of empowerment and ideas for each other. Searchers today have tools immediately at hand that I couldn't have imagined when I first started trying to figure out who my mom and dad might have been. My leads were fuzzy memories, astrology, half-recalled names, vague suggestions about private investigators and petitioning judges to open files, all vastly out of reach when I was working for minimum wage hundreds of miles away from Idaho and Kansas. Uh, today, a few minutes on the adoptee hashtag on Twitter will connect any adoptee with a community of folk who can point a new searcher in a number of potentially significant directions. Genetic matching services, despite their flaws and implications, can directly link an adoptee with their biological relatives in a matter of weeks. What took me years, literally decades, to unpuzzle can be done by others now in a few months. I've spent much of the first months of the 2020 pandemic reflecting on the improbability of having found and learned my story. 2020 has brought a time of great chaos and confusion, a time when my own lived experience has thrown into the stark contrasts of global disruption and localized suffering. I watched my wife publish a book called Play Like a Feminist in this year, and 
watched her promote it and saw the importance and need for decompression and play and being able to let go of anxieties and neuroses, especially against the backdrop of a world that felt like it was ending. Being adopted and raging against that institution as it is now practiced is a side note in a maelstrom of civil rights protests and medical emergencies that played out over that year, this year, the previous year. Still, it is a year of change, of transmutation, when the online adult adoptee community is more galvanized than ever, when conversations about international adoptees being deported are consistently appearing now in national news, and when the absurdities and atrocities that were the U.S. Border Patrol adoption practices are become part of the overall pushback by the nation's voters as they ultimately rejected the Trump presidency. Uh, that means the groundwork is there. The path forward is clear for adoptees to take the microphone and tell their stories. More adoptees in more writers' rooms. Family secrets are their own shadows, where adoptees' true selves are all too often withering. So coming out of that darkness is the only path for self-individuation. Uh, without self-consciousness, an adoptee never fully matures. They never adult. They never gain a full understanding of their position within our shared universe. I never felt fully real until I met a biological relative. I never felt fully anchored in space and time. Um, I've spent a fair portion of this podcast, all these episodes, what I've written, delving into personal experiences and struggling to wrap words around ineffable psychological processes to help underscore the experience of being an adoptee. I remember seeing Kenya Barris on stage saying that, you know, the personal puts to light the particular that sort of illuminates the global, right? I'm summarizing how he put it. You can go and watch him on stage, accept his Peabody for blackish, and capture the essence of what he put more eloquently. But personal experiences, subjects rather than objects, um, ineffable psychological processes, those underscore the experience of being an adoptee, but those can underscore the experience of any marginalized experience, right? Like, you have to understand the particular to get your head around the global, uh, the, the community. But the wounding, the damage to all adoptees who are rebranded, re-identified, overlaid with another name, with a history wiped free of human connections, that's not a mental illness. Uh, that's an identity trauma. Uh, the adoptee experiences an existential break from humanity and they're planted in a bubble of meaning devoid of historicity and then tasked through biological and psychosocial imperatives to individuate under these circumstances. Again, this is not a mental illness or a disorder. It is an institutional harm, um, a damage done to a generations upon generations of adoptees by the institutional processes. Early on in this book, I referenced The Primal Wound, the book by Nancy Verrier, herself an adoptive mother and therapist that helps me begin to understand that being adopted could be part of the larger emotional responses or reactions that I had with my adoptive parents as a preteen and teenager. So now I see that part of the problem with adoption is this misdirection. Being adopted causes emotional outbursts because adoption itself is not a normal or natural experience. Adoptees also have wildly different lives. Being an adoptee is an event. Um, 
<laughs> a lifelong condition. This narrative framing of one's identity only matters in moments of crisis and vulnerability, and it always creates a situation that deviates from the lived experience of the kept, the non-adopted. It is only in this difference that adoptees find shared experiences around which to bond. Adoptee communities online are a chaotic landscape of interrelated online forums, groups, hashtag conversations out there between the adoptees who do publicly engage in discussions. So our perceptions of victimization vary, as does our responses and ideas about bettering our own experiences and changing the industry of adoption. Unlike other marginalized groups who experience cultural biases or institutional repressions, Adoptees are not a monolith, easily visible, uh, immediately acknowledged by others as such. Adoptees often self-out themselves during medical visits by requesting government documents or during legal matters, but it is in those moments of self-outing or other times when legal identity matters arise, uh, moments of vulnerability in that one individual's life that occurs and resolves differently from those who aren't adopted, who are seen as normative in their familial orientation. Um, I've moved through many emotional phases as an adoptee. I do not know that there is any pattern or unfolding that might be consistent with other adoptees. This isn't a linear process of emotions, as one might expect with grief. Uh, instead, it's more a series of inconsistent triggers, conscious and subconscious responses to interpersonal relationships, all of which combined to set the stage for processing memory and discovery during my ongoing investigation into my own birth. I also try to practice empathy and compassion when I encounter others online relating their own experiences as adoptees or adopters or those who have given up their own children for adoption. It's difficult and situational issue and there are not enough conversations being had about adoption, something I became aware of as I have grown older. I started out transitioning from adoptee to uh, adoptee rights activist by first digesting my own lived experience, making sense of it, and then coming out into the world to find a place to try and explain who I am, how I got that way out of the shifting puzzle of my past. I don't think my personal experience outweighs that of any other adoptee. I think that instead, you know, a chorus of adoptee voices might best lift the personal in particular out of the shadows and secret lives all too often left within family walls. There should be some sort of better model on which to map out new approaches for interceding on the behalf of infants and children to preserve their identities. Legal guardianship centers the infant and child as the one in need of care, at least symbolically, and this is the idea I bring up whenever I find myself arguing about why adoption is inherently traumatizing, not only at the initial point of adoption, but throughout the adoptee's life. Whenever they are hailed by the lack of history of placement, that rootless void of non-entity identity that non-adoptives need never confront. There are more adoptees in the United States than anyone realizes, particularly some of those adoptees. Not all of us are adopted at birth, as I was, and the fact that there are a great number of adoptees who are, participate in their own adoptions. And so, as with all things human, there are always differences of opinion, uh, nuances of experience. I will not speak for all adoptees. I can't. Um, there are more stories from individual adoptees themselves to be told. Representation matters, and adoptees should speak on their own behalf in a way that hopefully can spark empathy, 
spread compassion, and raise awareness about alternatives to adoption, ideally legislative ones, that stop the legal fiction of erasure of identity through the strong arm of the courts. But representation must not end with entertainment. I know that adoptees aren't easily finding the kind of therapists that they might need to deal with individual psychological issues from personal experience, as well as countless anecdotal inferences. So, my interactions with mental health professionals were more traumatizing than healing when I was in my youth, leading to long-standing difficulties in trusting therapists um, in my adults, adulthood or finding peace of mind in any kind of institutional setting. Um, I don't think I'm the only adult adoptee who has expressed frustration with the inability to find a therapist who is conscious of adoptee-specific trauma. My experience as a young adoptee growing up within a religious family and school environment where I felt as if the doctrines and dogma that I was taught were actively harmful to my personal growth and individuation, it's hard to articulate to most therapists, certainly in the South. But I am an adoptee who is conscious of his voice within the larger framework of the conversation happening online. That I am conscious of this position is only because I have, to some extent, been there and back again. I have completed what I feel I needed to do to be done with my lifetime of searching. Consider that therapy isn't the only place it would have been nice to find fellow adoptees who know the landscapes. Um, legal aid, private detectives, politicians, medical professionals. Honestly, finding other adoptees within these professions feels not unlike discovering a secret society still exists, albeit disempowered and in need of reconnections. Adoptees are a disempowered citizenry spread all the more diffuse in that those who are adopted are more likely to self-harm, to die young, to become incarcerated or institutionalized. So adoptees are not primarily at psychological risk. The risk to adoptees is social. It's stigmatization, it's poverty, and it is, to be frank, a political and cultural struggle, not a psychological one that faces adoptees. I'm not looking out there any longer to find something. I've begun reflecting back on how I ended up here. And where here is now for me is to be in a position where I can see conversations extending into what it feels like infinity around the central driving issue amongst all adult adoptees. Where am I from and what happened to me? Um, considering that question for me was how I found the answer to it. Never losing sight of the question was, of course, impossible. I felt like solving this puzzle would be impossible until the widespread availability of DNA testing. But even before then, finding my natural mother, my first mother, my actual mother, finding her, her address and sending her a letter, that felt like magic. It was a miracle, a sequence of events that led up to my discovery of her real-world presence, and that I could reach her and she could reach back through and send me something as well, send me poetry and a prayer and a signature. That was more than I had ever previously believed I would be able to do. It was reading the cards before they were dealt. It was seeing the lines between stars without needing a guide. I could see the constellation of fate aligned for just a moment when I received a letter from her in response. Uh, meeting my sister in person in 2019 was a rending of the veils, a relationship outside of time, somehow predestined and always obscured from mundane reality. Um, 
I find a strange thrumming internal energy in the realization that I connected to her and my mother despite the legalities and institutional forces that were set in our way. We, we don't talk much, perhaps because we're all from such different worlds, but the world itself wasn't cagey enough to outsmart me and the interconnections of spirit are too strong to be ignored once I set out to sense those energies. Uh, I don't know if every adoptee is prone to some sort of psychic link with those that they're searching for, and I wouldn't know how to begin corroborating accounts were I to even try and assemble them. But to quote Susan Vega's song, Blood Sings, when blood sees blood of its own, it, it sings to see itself again. It sings to hear the voice it's known. It sings to recognize the face. I recognize the face of my mother. I did the moment I saw her. I remember her hair. I remember its length. I remember her tears, her smile, and her laughing eyes. I don't know why or how I could retain that memory imprint from the day I was born. But I knew her face when I saw it in the first time as a photograph, I knew my sister from my mother's face, which I'd only seen at birth, to retain that grim knowledge, but know that it has no meaning, or worse, is easily discounted, weighs the truth of it ever stranger against my conscience. Um, all adoptees must in some way deal with similar struggles, or at least with similar fantasies, meeting one's biological relatives after years of costly struggle, is, to be frank, a privileged position. That I succeeded. That I went from Wall Street in New York City to Wall Street in Idaho and Stanley, somehow, um, that I succeeded. That I hadn't died along the way. That I somehow found the funds to travel across the country once I did locate them and that my encounters with my relatives has gone as well as it has, all of this is a blessing and luck and strange sequence of events in retrospect uh, that I find myself stunned at how it played out. Um, reflecting specifically on my memories of visiting Twin Falls, Idaho, where I was born, I visited three times since I moved away from there, and in each visit I thought I would experience something which did not happen. The first time I came, I was young, alone, and meeting all of my friends two years after having left town. I thought I would see one of the girls I'd known years earlier rekindle a friendship that would somehow become something more. I, I was young, and that did not happen. A year later, I returned, driving with Amy, my then-girlfriend from Wichita, Kansas, to Twin Falls, Idaho, with the plan to stop in Salt Lake City and get a signed copy of the leather Seasons of Mist graphic novel from Neil Gaiman. Um, I also secretly believed I'd somehow learn who my real mother was on that trip. Uh, I did meet Neil Gaiman and was first in line, in fact, the first person to buy the book that day at that comic book store, and he graciously drew a Morpheus in the book I'd purchased alongside his signature. Uh, but I didn't learn what I hoped to learn, something I didn't admit to myself until I returned to Kansas and fell into a deep depression that lasted years, until I finally did begin searching in earnest. Uh, visiting the third time, I feared that I wouldn't want to leave, that somehow the pull of Idaho would overpower the life I'd built in Georgia, the world I'd understood with my wife and son. 
Meeting blood relatives for the first time is a powerful thing. It is atavistic. It doesn't resonate so much with the daylight world as it does with drives, needs, hungers, fears. Finding my way through that required the guidance of my wife, Shira. Much like the trip long before I was ever fully conscious of my desired search was navigated by my friendships and my girlfriend, Amy, years and years earlier. That I sought out my mother before my father and that I relied on the emotional support of my women friends is not lost on me. I've always been more comfortable with women than with men, and my relationship with my adoptive father set the groundwork for conflicts that I've had with other men throughout my personal and professional life. So when I visited the third time to meet my biological father, I was also braced for a conflict that never arose. There isn't yet a central theme to my life. Um, there's no grand thread to pull at other than this. The worst that could have happened never did. And the strangest situations have all resolved themselves. All I did was ask the right questions for a long enough period of time, and I have had more than my share of luck along the way. I got to meet people I, whose work I admired and shake their hands in ways that I couldn't have expected. Hugs, even. Um, you know, being an adoptee isn't a choice, and it's hardly a tribe of its own, but on Twitter there's a conversation always at hand, always on tap. Speaking out about being an adoptee, about being adopted, is always an option if it is your truth and your lived experience. By keeping that inside, it becomes a secret, a burden, that can overwhelm the true expression of oneself. While online, I lead more and more with, I'm an adoptee, because it's an essential or it is essential, at least to me, that adult adoptees be seen and contribute to the discussion about granting citizenship to those international adoptees who are otherwise left positioned without citizenship. But it is also important because adoptees need to be visible as more than simply infants or foster children in need of care. Without owning that, I do a disservice to myself and to those adoptees who may not yet realize the power over their own identities that has been exerted upon them by the state and their guardians. In the song Blood Sings, Vega closes with these lines. When blood, when blood sees blood of its own, it sings to see itself again. My dream is that all you adoptees find your own songs to sing. My name is Jeffrey Wessonru, and as I've said if before I was adopted on April 15, 1974, in Twin Falls, Idaho. I was born at the Magic Valley Regional Medical Center a little before 1 p.m. in the afternoon. And as you can probably tell, I am an Aries. Uh, <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed listening to these episodes, the rough if you will, of my memoir, the text that I hope to eventually write and publish someday. But this is a story that's difficult to tell, um, even in reading, just reading these words aloud. I find myself sometimes so overcome with emotion I can barely get the next word out. I hope that hasn't disrupted your appreciation of this episode and the previous ones in any way. And I hope you've um, found meaning and taken something from these stories that I've been able to relay. 
Mm. I finished the script of this uh, Wednesday, October 28th of 2020, but I find myself always tweaking the script. And so when I finally recorded this over the period in July of 2021, as the, my family was out of town, I am still watching episodes of This Is Us. I'm still watching adoptee films and thinking about adoptee horror. And I'm still thinking about other ways I can extend this conversation beyond my own experience. And I hope that you can find ways to bring your conversations out into public, especially if they're about adoption, um, in ways that I have not been able to illuminate. And that you take this to heart. We're all human beings. We all need to build empathy for each other. Until I find another way to tell the story, this has been a series of unrelated thoughts.
that is the end of Wes Unruh's story. Thank you for joining us on Deep Americana. As always, I'm Ray Carney. You have a good evening. <laughs>